Well, friends, I'd invite you to turn with me now, please, to the passage that Graham read for us, that passage that we're going to consider this morning, and it's Esther chapter 3. We're going to consider the whole uh, chapter this morning, so we're going to move quite quickly through it. But I invite you to have in front of you now Esther chapter 3. I don't know how many of you who watched this morning will be fans of Scottish football. I have a vested interest, not in Rangers or Celtic, it has to be said, but in uh, Queen of the South, of course, the only team that's mentioned in the Bible. They're from Dumfries, and that is, of course, where I was minister for four years. But the big news that came out of Scottish football this week wasn't from Rangers or Celtic, but it was from Livingston. Their manager, David Martindale, had to pass a test set by the Scottish Football Association to see if he was a fit and proper person to be the manager of Livingston Football Club. A good few years ago, Martindale was convicted of uh, being involved in organised crime. And so for that reason, then, he had to pass this test. They had to assess him and see whether he was a fit and proper person. The answer this week, it came back, well, yes, he was okay. But as we come to Esther chapter 3 this morning, as we read this section that, that Graham read for us, we see that Haman isn't a fit and proper person, don't we? We see that if we apply the same test to him, then there is no way that he could pass that test that's set for him. Is Haman a fit and proper person to lead in Xerxes' stead, to stand in Xerxes' stead? The answer is a resounding no. And we see that in at least three ways. We see that in three things that we see in Haman. Firstly, we see his insecurity. That because Mordecai won't bow down to him, he wants all of the Jews killed. Secondly, we see it in his insincerity, that he is very liberal with the truth. And then thirdly and finally, we see it in the injunction that he has made, that he has written, so that all of the Jews might be killed. We'll look at this passage under those three headings. We'll see his insecurity, we'll see his insincerity, and we'll see the injunction that he has made. So firstly then, we see his insecurity, his insecurity, and we see that in verses 1 through 6. We finished thinking last week about Esther chapter 2 with Robin and we saw how Mordecai had discovered a plot against Xerxes, against Ahasuerus the king. How Mordecai had made this plot known and how in effect Mordecai had saved the king's life. And because that's the context of chapter 3 comes in, it comes to us as a surprise then of what we read in verse 1. Because in Esther chapter 3 verse 1 we read, After these things King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. Now, what we would expect to read here is that King Ahasuerus promoted Mordecai, the one who had saved his life, the one who had looked out for him. But instead of Mordecai being promoted, instead of Mordecai being advanced, this man, Haman, is advanced. And he's set above all of the other officials who were with him. Mordecai's the one who's protected the king. Mordecai's the one who's kept King Ahasuerus safe. But it's Haman, the Agagite, who's advanced. Now, there should be alarm bells ringing for us here as we read of Haman the Agagite. We've thought a little bit before about this, uh, this conflict that had raged between the people of Agag, the people of Amalek, and the people of God. King Agag was an enemy of the people of God. Ultimately, it was Saul's failure to kill King Agag that had cost him his throne. And so here we have the two ancient enemies. Here we have the ancient people of God represented by Mordecai. And here we have the ancient enemies of God represented by Haman, the son of Agag. And here we have them at conflict. Here this conflict is restored, reignited, if you like. As Haman goes about his royal business, 
as he goes into and comes out of the royal palace, all of the other officials are expected to bow down before him. All of the other officials are expected to give him the honour that is due to him. Because that was what the king commanded concerning him. That is what the king said should happen to Haman. But we're told that Mordecai wouldn't bow down. The end of verse 2, Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And the king's servants came to Mordecai and they said to him, look, do you know what you're doing? Have you any idea what trouble you're storing up for yourself? Have you any idea the danger you're putting yourself in? Why don't you just bow down? Why don't you just pay him the homage? Why don't you just do what King Ahasuerus commanded? If you get caught, then it's not going to end well for you. And they continue in a similar vein, don't they? Day after day after day. Verse 4, they say to him, day after day after day. Why won't you just do it? Why won't you just pay him homage? Why won't you just bow down before him? And when Mordecai won't listen, when Mordecai won't acquiesce to their commands, they say that they, they, they take the matter to Haman himself and say, look, this guy Mordecai, he won't bow down before you. He won't pay you the homage that the king says is due to you. Notice the reason it's given. It's linked here to his being a Jew. Mordecai won't pay homage because he's a Jew. Mordecai won't bow down because he's a Jew. Now, what's going on here? What's the big deal? What's the big picture that the author of Esther is trying to paint for us? Mordecai's refusal to bow down is linked to his being a Jew. There is obviously some kind of religious element to his refusal to bow down. We're not told why he does it. We're not told why he adopts the course of action that he does. But only that it's linked to his Jewish heritage, his Jewish ethnicity, if you like. Now, there are a couple of reasons that people put forward. There are a couple of reasons people will say, well, this is why uh, Mordecai wouldn't bow down before Haman. Firstly, people will say, well, it's because Haman was an Agagite. Haman was a descendant of the, the old people, the old enemies of God. And therefore, Mordecai refused to bow down to him because by bowing down to him, by paying homage to him, Mordecai would, in effect, be saying, well, Morde- uh, that, that Haman's God, the Agagite God, was greater than the God of Israel. And there's some truth in that, I think. But yet it runs deeper than that. Because there's an element in this bowing down. There's an element in this homage that is worshipping. Think about Daniel and his three friends. When they're brought before that giant statue of Nebuchadnezzar, they're told to bow down before it. And they refuse because it is the Lord alone whom they worship. It is the Lord alone whom they serve. In the sound of silence by Simon and Garfunkel, there's the following line. The people bowed and prayed to the neon gods they made. The general consensus is that Simon and Garfunkel were talking about advertising and the the power of advertising that it held over people's lives. That constant need to have more. They bowed down and they worshipped. They bowed down and they prayed to the gods that they had made for themselves. And so here for Mordecai, by bowing down, by paying homage to him and the Agagite, he feels that he would be worshipping him. Now, we're dealing here with a different king, don't forget. We're dealing here with a different reign other than the one that Daniel and his three friends encountered. But the overtones are still there. By bowing down, Mordecai would be saying that Haman was worthy of worship, that Haman was worthy of his praise. And as a good Jew who worshipped God alone, who had only one God, there was no way 
that Mordecai was prepared to do that. But what's in it for us this morning? What can we learn from this? What can we take away from it this morning? Well, friends, there are times when the compromises that we're called to make might seem small. There will be times in each of our lives when the cost of not compromising our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ seems too great to bear. And in those times, we need to remember the truth that we live our lives before an audience of one, that we live our lives to please God and him alone. He is our judge and our deliverer. For Mordecai, it would have been the easiest thing to bow down and give worship, to bow down and pay homage. It would have made for a much easier life for him, but he didn't do it because he worshipped God alone. Think about those Christians in the Roman Empire. For them, it would have been the easiest thing in the world to burn a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. They could have crossed their fingers behind their back. They could have said, well, we don't really believe it and just burn the incense for an easier life. But they didn't because they knew that Jesus is Lord. For us today, it's easy to say nothing about abortion. It's probably more popular to say nothing about abortion. It's easier to go along with the gossip at work. It's easier to go along with the gentle bullying that happens on work at work. It's easy just to click on that one image and say, well, look, this isn't really doing any harm. This isn't doing anyone any real harm. To nudge the world and be friends with it. To try and compromise as much as we can. That's the easy thing to do. But the hard thing to do is what Mordecai does here. The hard thing to do is to go against the grain. Is to say, well, no, I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, I won't do that. I am a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, I won't do that. To follow Christ fully, to wholeheartedly live for Christ, to die to the world and live for him. That's what Mordecai does here. He honors God in all that he does. And it doesn't bring him an easy life, despite what our friends in the health and wealth prosperity movement might say. It doesn't bring him an easy life. Obedience to God doesn't bring him an easy life. Rather, Haman sees what's happening. And he's filled with fury. So much so that he doesn't want to do away with just Mordecai. That he isn't content with doing away with his one man who's caused him problems. Instead, rather, Haman sees this as a chance to do away with the whole Jewish race. Not just this one man, but the whole nation will be wiped out. So incensed was he by Mordecai's refusal. So incensed was he by Mordecai's uh, inability to pay him homage. He decides that genocide is the only answer. And this is always the consequence when we think much of ourselves. When we seek our fame, our advancement, our glory over and above the glory of Christ. You see, eventually people won't give us enough credit. Eventually people won't give us enough worship. Eventually people won't think highly of an, enough of us. And so when someone does better than we do, when someone achieves more than we do, our natural response then is to be bitter, is to be angry, is to be jealous, is to go into this rage. Instead, Friends, let's not seek our own glory, but instead let's have the mind of Christ. Who thought not equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but instead humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let us have the mind of Christ who came and lived amongst us, not as one who came to be served, but who came as one who served. Human, Haman's insecurity then leads to this plot. But secondly then, we see his insincerity, his insincerity. And we see that in verses 7 through 11. So Haman's been scorned by Mordecai. Mordecai's refused to bow down to him. Mordecai's refused to give him the homage that he thinks he's due. And so he begins to put his plan into action. But we see verse 7 that he begins it by casting lots. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So what's going on here is that Haman is essentially casting dice. He's essentially casting lots to see when a favourable day might be. Similar today, I suppose, to people who might read their horoscopes. Haman's throwing these dice, thinking, well, when will be a good day? He throws the dice and someone will come and interpret them for him. Maybe some astrologer, some sage, some wise man will say, well, look, today isn't looking great for you. And notice that this practice goes on for quite some time. It goes on for day after day after day. It goes on for month after month after month. And still the answer comes back. Nope, today's not a good day. Nope, today's not a good day. Nope, today's not a good day. And again here we see hints being dropped of the sovereignty of God, of the control of God over this situation. They can throw the dice. They can cast the lots. But ultimately it's the Lord who's in control. Ultimately, it's the Lord who will bring about the day that he has chosen. They're busy making all of their plans. They're busy doing everything that they think is right. But it's the Lord and his timing that's in control. This casting of lots goes on for 12 months. Haman here is obviously looking for an opportune time to come before the king. An opportune time when the stars are aligned, when everything's in his favour and the king might go along with his plan. And when the time comes, notice how he comes to the king with lies and half-truths, presenting the truth in the worst possible life. He comes to the king and he brings him this insincere information. He says, look, verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's law, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So what does he say? Well, he says, look, these people are scattered abroad. Now let's stop and consider for a moment, why are they scattered abroad? And they're scattered abroad because Xerxes, Ahasuerus, and his forefathers have taken them from their homeland, have brought them into their kingdom. They're scattered abroad because they've taken them away. So essentially the fact that they're scattered abroad is Ahasuerus' fault. It might be true that they have their own laws. But it's certainly not true, is it, that they don't keep the laws of the king? Only one man we know has refused to keep the king's law. Only one man we've seen so far has refused to obey the king. And that was Mordecai. One of the things that COVID has brought us all, I think, is this focus on statistics. But statistics, by and large, can be used to, to say pretty much anything that you want them to say. 
One that sticks in my mind a, a few weeks ago was, I can't remember if it was the chief scientific officer or the chief medical officer said that around one in 40 people in Armagh, Banbridge and Craigavon had COVID. Now a fan of those statistics, putting them in a positive light will say, well, look, that's 2% of people have COVID in Armagh, Banbridge and Craigavon. Can you believe it? It's terrible, it's shocking. But equally, someone else reading those statistics might say, well, look, there's 39 out of 40 people who are perfectly healthy in Armagh, Banbridge and Craigavon. It's the same statistics, but it's presented in two ways. And so too here, Haman presents these statistics, these facts as he sees them, in the worst possible light. These people have their own laws. They do their own things. They aren't subject to you, King. Therefore, it's not really worth your while tolerating them. So if you're happy, King, then let my solution be put into place. Let all of these people be killed. And look, just to, just to sweeten the deal, just to get it over the line, I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver as well. And at that suggestion, we see that the king, verse 10, takes a signet ring from his hand and gives it to Haman, Haman the Agagite. This is the king telling him that he can do what he wants with this signet ring that he's taken off his hand, with this signet ring that he's given over to Haman. Haman can basically do what he wants. He can sign letters under the authority of the king. The people of God under grave state-sponsored threat. And as we live some 3,000 years later, has anything really changed? God's people today in many parts of the world are still under state-sponsored persecution. Still live with that fear of what the next knock at the door might bring. Our brothers and sisters throughout the world for whom it would be, if not illegal, certainly ill-advised to gather with other Christians. Our brothers and sisters around the world who live under threat for naming the name of Jesus. Let's never neglect to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters, those who face that same threat that the people of God faced here. Haman's insincerity leads to the threatened demise of the Jews. And then finally, thirdly this morning, we want to think about the injunction that's made. And we see that in verses 12 to 15. So Haman's plans come together. His plot has come together, if you like. The Jews are to be killed, but the word must get out. The, the edict must get out there. The, the, the decree must be published. And so all of the king's scribes are summoned. And the letters are sent on the 13th day of the first month. Just throw that away for a moment. We'll come back to it in a few seconds. Letters are sent by the king's couriers to every part of the empire. Far and wide, these letters are sent out. With the injunction drafted in their own language, lest there be any confusion, lest there be any misunderstanding, everyone will read it in their own language. What's to happen? Lest there be any ambiguity, we see the scale of the genocide that's about to take place. We're told, verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. These letters are sent out in the first month. There's 11 months preparation time going into this. There's 11 months thinking time going into this. But the letters were issued 
just as the Jews were about to celebrate the feast of Passover. No doubt Haman designed this to try and rob them of the joy of celebrating the Passover. But yet there couldn't be any better time for the letter to be issued, could there? When the Jews were reminded of God's deliverance of them from the bondage of a foreign power intent on destroying them in Egypt. When the Jews were reminded of how God acted in history past to save them against all odds. And of course, friends, we have been delivered this morning through our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who has defeated our ultimate enemy in death. The one who has set us free from our ultimate bondage to sin and the devil. The one who redeems his people. Haman's insecurity leads to him being insincere with the truth. Leads to him issuing this terrible injunction that the Jews should be killed. But their God is about to act. Their God is about to deliver them. And we'll find out how next week. Amen.